Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. Today, we're giving a rapid roundup of what's been changing for SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 genomics. So things are changing very quickly. So we should mention that it's the 19th of February, 2021. And some of what we mentioned right now might change by the time you hear this. Today, we're putting a spotlight on COVID-19 in Africa, and we're joined by a very special guest, Peter Van Hursten, a bioinformatician at the South African National Bioinformatics Institute. Peter has a systems administration background and has moved over into the bioinformatics world. So welcome, Peter. Thank you, Nabil. All right. And so let's get started with uh, reviewing the latest changes regarding the different variants of concerns. We'll have a quick chat about Bleak and Fidel. So they identified the UK variant B117 with the E44K spike mutation there recently. And Ravi Gupta did a, a nice little paper on that. And that was identified, I think, in Bristol, but it's arisen a few times in the UK independently. People have come up with the name Bleak. You know, Eek is E484K. And they've said Bleak. Well, I think it sounds reasonable, you know. It, it is <laughs> but just give us a bit more info on that. Is that actually just popping up like popcorn uh, or is it actually in growing lineages? So there was an outbreak, like with many linked cases, nearly identical in one UK city. And then when they looked further, they saw that it is coming up independently. So unfortunately, it, it obviously confers some kind of advantage to the genome. And it's also in, you know, like the B1351 and in the P1 and P2 lineage as well. So it is a bit of a problem because I think that's the one that's linked. That's a mutation that's linked to vaccine issues and it's causing some concern i know amongst people that the vaccines particularly like astrazeneca and the like aren't going to work as well and i believe south africa have decided to hand back the astrazeneca vaccines haven't they it's been a bit complicated it's now been announced i think that they're going to donate them to the african union so what happened was that there is actually a phase two arm of the astrazeneca trial in south africa so only about two thousand people i happen to be on it, actually, obviously, I don't know whether I got the vaccine or the placebo. And then when they looked at a sub-analysis, so they've been running this since last year. And then when they looked at a sub-analysis since the B1351 variant emerged, then it seemed to lack efficacy against this new variant. However, I mean, I think that was down to about a thousand odd people that's in both the placebo and the vaccine arms. And the error bars were huge. I mean, I think the the 95% confidence interval went everywhere from minus 40% to 50-something percent efficiency. In other words, 
there is a chance that the vaccine will make you sick with COVID-19. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But the the thing is that basically, uh, because the sample size was so small, this was designed as a, as a phase two trial, which really is a baseline efficacy and safety trial, not a real efficacy trial like a, a well-powered uh, phase three, then the results were really difficult to interpret. And then the thing that was particularly concerning was that there was not enough statistical power to tell you what's happening with regards to serious disease. Also because the trial population, because it's phase two, was chosen from generally healthy uh, individuals. So these people would normally not get severe COVID anyway. So I mean, I think the average age of a trial participants in the 30s. And so We've got this big worry, but we don't really have enough data to actually know how worried we should be. So it's all a bit nasty. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of conflicting reports on this one. It's it's definitely watch this space until we get some something a bit more more concrete. You be, can't exactly do that while rolling, rolling out a vaccine, right? So no, that's I mean why they to, kind of gave the vaccine to, back. Yeah. It does seem to be that nearly every day now we have a new variant of concern or a variant under investigation. There's quite a few now. I mean, the original UK variant, you know, is getting absolutely everywhere now around the world. I see in Denmark, MADS has said it's 48% now of their cases. And it seems to be in many European countries, it's similar kind of uh, trajectories, which isn't the best, you know, because obviously you need much more enhanced measures. But it's good now that people are kicking into gear with sequencing and actually identifying it uh, versus previously where, you know, it was just, well, that's it. That's how it is. And uh, so this week we've had a few new ones as well. We'll discuss them more later, but there's a B1525, which I think is associated with Nigeria or travel to Nigeria. And then there's A23.1, which is associated or first discovered and described in Uganda. And then even with us, like we did a bit of sequencing with Zimbabwe and there's a, a C2 lineage, which sounds interesting. So lots and lots of new potential variants of concern uh, arising absolutely everywhere around the world as we start looking for them. And so all of those you've mentioned are all carrying e- the EEC change, E484K, I think. Oh, well, some of them are, but some of them are carrying other things and they don't really know what they're doing. All they know is that these lineages have, you know, exploded and uh, look pretty bad. So in our data, we've been actually kind of hunting in the marginal data for E44K. So, you know, going down to read level, 1x coverage, you know, what is actually in the sample in our in Illumina data? You know, it, it, it can be uh, dangerous to look at a single read and try and make some kind of assessment on it. But if you're uh, doing, say, surge testing and you're trying to say you've identified one case in the community and now you want to see who else is around uh, who might have that and then stop them and stop the transmission chain from, you know, and stop it from spreading in the community very quickly before it gets established. That is a reasonable way. And it is worth looking for these very marginal samples at single reads. But, you know, would would you be confident in a single read of Illumina? Oh, looking at single reads where there's only one read coverage or single reads where the other reads say something different? Single reads where you have one read coverage. Now, generally... Even in marginal samples, you'll have maybe two, three, four, five reads. But to help with this, uh, Public Health England have actually now published different thresholds um, for different variants. You know, how many of the lineage-defining mutations do you need to be able to call that as a low-quality case or a high-risk, low-quality case? So they now have these kind of definitions of really crappy data. But it's important, you know, when you're 
trying when you have a new variant of concern in an area and it hasn't established and you want to kind of stamp it out quickly so i mean like what what do you do with one x like is that reported as as like a statistical measure so it just helps out public health yeah uh, we would i i have reported some of these (laughs) where uh you say you might have say five or six defining mutations for a lineage and maybe they only have one X covering one read covering each of those. But the probability of all of those being in the same sample, like low coverage sample, uh, at the same time is very low. You, you know, it's probability of all being sequencing errors. So it's probably that is that lineage, particularly if it's not in the sequencing experiment you're doing already. So yeah, we we have called some of those and we have highlighted them to public health, but as high risk, low confidence data. So that poses a bunch of daunting challenges. So firstly, you're not putting that in Jazade, right? I mean, that's just not going to be the level of sample that you can put in a database. No, no, no. This isn't general, definitely not for general consumption. I was actually asked earlier today, like, you know, about cutoffs for, you know, because we used to, you know, bacteria with mixed infections and things like that. It's not something that we really pay as much attention to in SARS-CoV-2 because we're not really anticipating a lot of mixed infections, but... You know, normally something like that would just get tossed out by the QC. Yeah, so most of that does get tossed out. But if you have, say, 30, 40% of your samples failing to meet the GSA criteria, but you still want to get useful information out of those, you know, they are still useful. And you can still call a lineage down to a very low level of coverage. So it's about trying to make the best use of the data you have. And that's in, in the case where you're sequencing everything you can get your hands on. Do you have any particular tooling for identifying these things? Are you eyeballing things in ITV, I mean, how do you like, how do you put that into a pipeline? So the very first step was mpile up, right? To look for interesting samples and then TView. But then there was a slightly more advanced step that I, that Tang on our team developed is, uh, he, he's basically done up spreadsheets and reports and it's quite simple then to just kind of scan very quickly and identify them. You know, it takes like two, two seconds, you know, to pull them out because it, it's particularly if you're looking, if you know particular mutations are interesting, so E404K being the example, there, it's not very common in the UK. So finding it is, you know, it sets off alarm bells. Yeah, I think even, I think this approach is, could be super useful for partial samples. I mean, maybe it could be generalized to uh, maybe something like 5X. I think, would you be comfortable with 5X, Peter, if you had a tool that gave you like a partial, very, you know, sort of couched prediction yeah. of, of the lineage? No, 5X, because look, what is your your, your base error rate in Illumina? I mean, it's uh, 5X would make me much more confident, you know? Yeah. But, you know, the other thing I'm thinking is that this is the kind of thing where you could perhaps be using this on sequencing from sewage samples because you can get such faint traces. But if you're willing to go that down, that deep down, it might actually be an interesting early warning system. I guess the storage problem is that uh, generally the fragments, uh, the amplicons don't really work as well. And people have been looking at smaller and smaller amplicons to try and get more out of sewage because the RNA is you know, so degraded at that point. But yeah, you're right. I mean, pulling that stuff out of sewage would be, uh, would be fun. Or even even asymptomatic cases where you don't have that much viral load, or or even early on in in the infection when it hasn't ramped up that much. So here's an interesting thing. I was just looking at this B1.525 that was mentioned as the other 
interesting variant of concern that has been seen in Nigeria, Denmark, UK. But besides the EEC, the E484K, there's a little bit of a crossover here with the United States because I see that it's also got Q, Q677H, which is in the birds, right? Birds? The birds. The <laughs> strangely named bird lineages that were announced uh, in a preprint uh, a few days ago. Lee, you're a resident yeah. American. Could you answer this? I think that people have tweeted about this now, so it's not really so secret anymore. It's just um, people are kind of musing over using bird names for for lineages instead of tying them to geography or using these variant names to words like like bleak. So they're thinking about bird names. And on that call, I suggested that maybe we need some bird watchers to help us name some variants. I sort of volunteered my friend and colleague, uh, Jess Chen, for that because she loves bird watching and she is also a bioinformatician. So the thing about these, if I recall the preprint, is that these are, um, the, the reason they went with bird names is that we're talking about sub-lineages, something going really down to like, we found this thing and then this thing had this slight variation, but it's not enough to call a lineage yet. So they basically are 677H or 677P in the spike uh, protein. And then they, they had to come up with, I mean, they couldn't keep coming up with like even more numbers. So they had to just give them nicknames for now. In the UK, we have UK lineages. So you have the Panglin uh, lineages like B117, but then we have UK lineages on top of that. And then those go down into like dot one, dot two, dot three, dot four. So there's like thousands upon thousands upon thousands. It's basically a numerical representation of uh, of file genetic tree. You know, each level down is another number dot something. And I think we'd run out of bird names very fast if we're doing that. Yeah, I'm surprised they they didn't they didn't incorporate something similar. By the way, we're not meant to call it pang uh, pangolin lineages anymore because apparently the linen pangolin is standing for lineage. So apparently they're now pango lineages, which sounds yeah, yeah, like pango a computer game. Yeah, like <laughs> pango. So I think part of the story in the, the, the US as well might be the involvement of Emma Hodcroft and therefore they started with next-strain clades and then dividing things within there instead of the pango lineages, which tend to be a bit more fine-grained. So all the birds are sitting either in 20G or 20B and then various kind of variations on a on a theme from there. But yeah, it really tends, you know, it really causes problems for us. I mean, somebody was calling for the, what's it called? The ICTV to give us names for things. Can you imagine if we had to wait for the, the International Committee on the Taxonomy of Viruses, whatever they're called? I don't, I don't know if I got that acronym correctly. You know, can we imagine if we had to wait for them to give us names? We'd be stuck forever. Well, it is an issue, isn't it? Uh, because at the beginning, I think a lot of lineages were just kind of uh, people in Andromeda's group going, oh, yeah, that looks like a lineage. There we go. But now it's it, they've had to try and formalize the process a little bit more because there's so many lineages out there. And it's just there's an explosion of diversity as time has gone on. Well, everyone has their own, their own variant of concern now. How does it past the smell test with what you guys think about with with naming variants with with human friendly names versus serial numbers versus whatever with with that last discussion we had well i think the press need a, a name they can use and they default to like south african variant and a uk variant and of course those things are quite controversial so peter can you tell us what the all the different versions of the names there are for the South African variant, which is a name we shouldn't use because we don't want to link location no. to 
a particular lineage or anything like that? No, it's ever since they misnamed the Ebola virus after the wrong river. So it's 501YV2. It's also 20H slash 501YV2. It's B.1.351. And I had to train myself to remember these things kind of the same way that one remembers the keystrokes that you use in VI. It doesn't mean anything. You just have muscle memory for it. It's so confusing, isn't it? And, you know, we're, we're working in the area and it's confusing for us. I mean, God help anyone who's maybe not working exactly in this area. They will just be totally and utterly bamboozled. You mean like Lee? Yes, that is me right now. (laughs) But yeah, I'm still learning. It's fun. Look, the geographic naming scheme really falls apart when you've got things like the bleak, which is, you know, B117 with a twist of lemon or something like that. And then if... You're going to call it the UK variant. Then what is bleak? Because it's also from the UK. Well, actually, the UK variant within the UK is called Kent variant because that's a place in the UK. And then the uh, bleak is actually the Bristol variant. Uh huh. And all of these birds, what variants are they? They're all USA variants. So, yeah. But I mean, the, the thing is, what also concerns me a little bit is when is a variant of concern of concern? Because we heard for a while about a, 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 some new results from California, but it didn't seem to actually have a lot concerning about it. It looked like it was actually just capturing a fairly accidental expansion uh, through outbreaks. I mean, you, descri- you describe that in terms of bleak, that, that bleak was associated with a particular outbreak. So if you have, you know, some kind of super spreader event, it can look like uh, the expansion of a viral lineage. But, you know, it used to be that we would kind of pour cold water on that and tell people that, you know, viruses mutate. But now it seems that we're super scared and every little blip, we we get worried about it. Every long branch in a tree, we get very worried, I think. No, but long branches is a different story. So, I mean, for instance, there's been a report now from someone in the US about uh, a recombination event. And that is stuff to worry about because we've suddenly got the selective landscape of the virus is being explored much faster than we thought it was just accumulating two variants a month or something like that. And now suddenly this thing is jumping. And that that is something to worry about. Now, I know recombination can occur, but we have to be very careful with this. If people are just basing it purely on sequencing data, I'd want to see like the underlying reads and I'd want to see if recombination has occurred, you know, two mutations occurring on a single high quality read, this kind of thing. If it's just someone has gone to Jizaid and then found a really interesting uh, sequence with lots of mutations in it, then I'd be very worried because that, you know, could just be contamination. It might just have been two different lineages on the same experiment on the same sequencing run and there's, you know, a bit of cross-contamination. Or maybe someone that was infected with two different strains or, some, you know, something like that. But I, I'd be very concerned without seeing the actual underlying data and without uh, someone having grown it, you know. Maybe I'm just skeptical in my old age, but I've seen so much contamination uh, now that I I really do want to see the data before believing these kind of uh, things have happened. And I know that, that we're trying to be careful over on our side too. If if anybody sees a variant, then it's like double check, triple check, anything. And we have to be very sure before like the media hears like CDC reports a new variant. Like we don't want any uh, overreaction. Yeah, especially since you are CDC. But I mean, yeah, this was this came into the media via somebody giving a presentation on an online webinar that doesn't seem to have a recording anywhere. So definitely, I think caution is merited. But the other thing is that people are now looking for more things and we're going to see more things. And I mean, that's actually encouraging. I mean, the fact that 
we're finally seeing the the UAS getting organized and hopefully putting something much bigger scale than the previously kind of academic-based sequencing and small-scale public health sequencing in place. And on the African continent as well, we've seen a push in very difficult circumstances to actually like do surveillance. Last year, we had a lot of first viruses. You know, we've the first sample from, you know, some other place. And that wasn't always sustainable. That's amazing. I, I mean, that that's always the case, right? You always have for any new process or technology, there's this prototype foundation bit and that's actually fairly easy to to knock out and then going back and trying to make it routine is a massive undertaking and that's taking time and but we're starting to see that come online but only now it's almost like nobody took us seriously before (laughs) why sequence this virus there's no variation why bother so maybe we'll move on to africa because uh, there's been a lot coming out of there in the past two weeks so, Peter, do you want to give us kind of a, a quick roundup of what the major papers have been and uh, what major things uh, have come out? So there's been some continuation of what already started and then some some new work that's quite interesting. So let me start with the continuation. I think we have to credit groups in Kenya at Camry for getting a sampling and sequencing effort, not producing a huge amount of data, but doing it relatively consistently since last year. And the same in Ghana, we've seen an effort to at least drop sequence every couple of months or something like that. I know it's not the scale that we'd like to see, but it's uh, at least continuous. And then in Uganda as well, the group at uh, UVRI around uh, Matt Cotton and others has been showing that like previous investment into these places is paying off. Unfortunately, we've also had a few kind of stalled processes where I know one group, I won't mention the group or the country, they basically ran out of reagents and therefore they'd started some really good surveillance, they had the skills, and and then they couldn't continue at the pace that they, they started at. And I know that, that something like that has happened in more than one place. So uh, there was some shortages related to shipping constraints earlier in the pandemic, but also a lot of people used their research funds to do some of the initial work. And then when those dried up, they weren't always replenished. So it's this real challenge that like, what is the relationship between, you know, academic research groups that are trying to help and actually, you know, kind of sustaining things from maybe your local ministry of health or something like that. But then besides that, we've seen the expansion of the B1.351 variant northwards. I heard most recently, no, I have first heard about it from Botswana and then Zambia, a big drop uh, of sequences from Dan Bridges' lab in Zambia showing that it was very, very common. And I think you said there's something in Zimbabwe now as well. Yeah, we did sequencing for, uh, with Zimbabwe for December and January, and we found a lot. Like, it is absolutely the most dominant strain. I think in December is about 60%, and now it's about 90% in uh, Zimbabwe, so it's, it's overwhelming. And the so-called second wave in Zimbabwe, from what I've heard, has been quite brutal. Unfortunately, some, some very um, prominent physicians passing away. Yeah, and hopefully they'll get that under control soon. But uh, we have also observed other lineages there. So the A23-1 was observed as well. And then a kind of a novel one as well we've seen as well, which we're just investigating at the moment, which has a, a 501T mutation, which, you know, people have seen in mink before, but uh, that's popped up with a few other little mutations. So we don't, we don't know what's going on there. 
Well, I hope that you will be able to carry on sequencing on a regular basis, either within Zimbabwe or by shipping samples out. Uh, yeah, the A23.1, which makes up the majority of sequences in Uganda, is interesting because it's a place where we haven't. And uh, similarly, the results that I heard from Kenya yesterday at the WHO uh, seminar was that they haven't seen the either B1.351 or B1.1.7 taking over in those places. So something about the travel restrictions is perhaps having an impact. Yeah, that's always the interesting thing. All of the spread is is always a human story, isn't it? Yeah. So one of the things is basically the different regimes for how people are being checked at the border or, or not. The presentation from Ghana that I heard yesterday was that B.1.1.7 was very prevalent there in community and in travelers. So it seems that West Africa, there's a lot of B.1.1.7 going around. And a friend of mine was actually asking me, well, you know, which variant's going to win? I mean, it's kind of a little bit like alien versus predator, you know, whoever wins, we lose, right? But just given the the volume of travel, that really is the story of the variants, right? So generally, people are more connected with these places like Dubai or the UK or, or Europe, where there's lots of flights back and forth. If things come from South Africa to the Southern African region, they're probably coming by, via road. Yeah, it's, it, that's the interesting thing about pathogens is they tell us a lot more about our human migrations more than anything. And when this is all done and dust, it'll be interesting to go back and see how people actually move using the, the virus as a marker. It's very interesting that we're doing sequencing in different places because we're now connecting the dots. So we noticed a little cluster in, in Zimbabwe data. And actually, it looks like that's kind of the source, the reservoir for this particular lineage. And it's been seen in a few other cases around the world in travelers. We guess they're travelers, you know, popping up in like 10 different countries. And it's only by sequencing, you know, broadly across the globe that we're actually going to see where is the actual source of these things rather than just kind of sporadic things popping up magically. And uh, we really do need to have surveillance just absolutely everywhere. We don't have to have much, but just, you know, a little bit to to kind of catch these things. Because at the moment, we're, we're totally blind in huge parts of the world. Yeah, I was just yeah. playing around with some of those numbers, going back to the country of isolation from the Jizade database and, looking, and just tabulating all of those. And then found that of all of the Jizade data, 4.4% of them are from LMICs. Obviously, the bulk of it is from the UK and then the US and then Denmark and then, but otherwise, uh, a very, very small proportion is coming from LMICs. Does everyone know what LMIC is? I'll I'll pretend I don't. Tell us. Oh, uh, low middle income countries. Yeah. Which makes up the majority of the world's population. So, so, I mean, I must admit, uh, by the way, in terms of hearing about Denmark, I, I must congratulate um, Matt Albertson for a very, very efficient use of nanopore sequences. I saw a photo from his lab a while back, and it was just, you know, nanopore sequences on every flat surface. And again, that was the example of somebody whose real strength before this thing was metagenomics, just pivoting towards viral sequencing and doing a great job. Yep. I'll have to say uh, South Africa comes at number two as the LMIC with the most sequences provided. Who's number one? India. Ah, that's good. So, and in fact, have we been looking at the variant landscape in India? I don't think so. I haven't paid much attention. But I mean, obviously, this should be, this is just absolute count. I mean, as a proportion of population, it's a completely different story whether what would come up as That is true. 
there has been some interesting work from India that I've been tracking. I haven't been looking at it very closely, but like in South Africa, some parts of India have reported a very, very high seroprevalence, you know, 40% seroprevalence in some low-income neighborhoods. Same thing coming out of Ghana, especially in the low-income areas. We're seeing this virus has been kind of ripping through the neighborhood, but sometimes luckily not with a severe disease, perhaps because of the age profile of the populations. But yeah, definitely there's, there's a lot to learn around the world from Brazil, from Indonesian archipelago, India and elsewhere. So it just shows, I think, also that there's a bit of a Western as well as kind of Anglophone bias to how these kind of conversations are happening. You know, I, I, I don't speak Portuguese and I can barely get by in French. That's all the time we have for today. We've been talking SARS-CoV-2 with some special attention to what's up in Africa. And I want to thank Peter for joining us today. And thanks everyone else for listening. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.